Again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, and we will read through to chapter 3, verse 3. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father had given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is God's word. Amen. The unfortunate reality of a two-part sermon is part one, (laughs) because I recognize that not everyone was here last week for it, but what are you going to do, right? And I can and probably should put that ball back in your court, reminding us that you can always access our sermons online for streaming, MP3 download, and podcasting consumption. Um, However, I will pitch you a last Sunday summary here in a moment. The fortunate reality of the two-part sermon is part two, in many ways, because you get to see and hear how all of God's Word fits together as a unified whole. So last week's message, as well as this week's, in a nutshell, is this. We can receive assurance and comfort through a clear view of Jesus Christ and His sufficiency. Getting a clear view of Jesus Christ and His sufficiency, that He is enough. We huffed and we puffed, but we didn't quite get to those verses that tiled us together last week. We will get to these glorious verses today, uh, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. But first, a last Sunday summary. 
Uh, it was pretty pr- plain from last week that this letter from the Apostle John contains in it what I call uh, Scooby-Doo verses. You know, when you walk around the corner and all of a sudden you're reading First John and you get to children, it is the last hour. The Antichrist is coming. This is bad. Antichrists have come. It just spooks us. But last week we defrighted and normalized Antichrists. An Antichrist is not necessarily some big, bad, daunting villain with fangs who seduces people by putting Satan in their cocktails, you know, and all of a sudden they're just out. But those who are literally Antichrist subtract from or add to the sufficiency of Christ and encourage others down that same path. So in another sense, this portrays Antichrist as more frightening because they are kind of more commonplace, even more normal, more sort of Joe churchgoer than we first imagined. So what we did is start with John's basic concept in verse 22, which views Antichrist as one who simply denies that Jesus is the Christ. Then we began to work our way out to understand this name, Jesus Christ, which is also, we found out, a doctrinal statement. It's a belief statement. It's a statement of faith, Jesus Christ. In the simplest form, you can get two words, a name. Jesus is pretty simple. His name derives from the Hebrew Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. The Christ, however, is a little bit more tricky, complex, Christ means the anointed one. It refers to three groups of leaders in the Old Testament. These human leaders who are anointed to lead God's people. Set apart to lead God's people. There are prophets. There are priests. There are kings. Prophets led by speaking on God's behalf to call people back to faithfulness to their end of the deal. Their end of the covenant. God graciously promised to take care of them, to provide for them in certain ways, and in response, He asked them to follow Him and obey Him in certain ways. And prophets called people back to that. Priests led by standing between man and God, receiving man's apologies for sin, which back then were essentially animal sacrifices, and He would offer them to God. Finally, kings led by ruling and organizing people in a godly fashion so that ultimately people could be free to worship God. Every human being who led in these roles sinned and fell short. They led imperfectly. But each was also given a promise that one would someday continue the line of each office and succeed or they failed. And that one is the God-man Jesus Christ. He is the Christ because he is the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, the anointed king. He speaks God's words which save. He stands between God and man to permanently reconcile the two. And he rules as king perfectly and increasingly until the day when the world is free from the tyranny of sin and free from the tyranny of what the Bible calls the God of this world, Satan. Some do not think, though, that Jesus is enough to save. He's enough to rescue. He is the Christ. And make that clear by vocalizing 
subtractions from or additions to him. And many follow such people out the church door, having likewise become convinced that Jesus is not enough. We talked last week about good and poor reasons for why people leave churches in the cases of the latter. That verse 19 makes it pretty clear that it likely says something about the person's salvation if they never rejoin a church. Or they spend their days jumping from fellowship to fellowship, never satisfied. It's never enough. And all of this is sufficiently scary because if God's Word is working right, it should probably lead us to the question, can we be sure? Can I be sure I can hold on? I will hold on, last, persevere, and abide. Can I last in affirming and seeing Jesus Christ as enough and thus last in an imperfect local church fellowship? Thankfully, John is tracking with us and he continues on this week by telling us how a clear view of Jesus as the Christ and His sufficiency helps you abide all the way to eternal life with Jesus. Alright, so this is our point three coming off from last week. Point one and point two last week. Sorry. Point three, a clear view of Jesus, His sufficiency helps you abide all the way to eternal life with Him. John summarizes how to do this, how to abide right away in verse 20. He says it's the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy One, and a foundational knowledge. So first, let's start with the fact that you all have knowledge. If you've trusted Jesus, you have knowledge. What John is trying to point out here is that antichrists don't have a monopoly on knowledge. People from within the church who are actually trying to add to Jesus' sufficiency or subtract from it, they don't have a monopoly on knowledge. This is important because you might feel less smart than these people who speak up. Less well-spoken, more introverted, less charisma. And you know, it's tempting to give in when you hear these convincing people. You might tempt them to give in and say, you know, it seems like they really know a lot. Or worse, it seems clear that God is using that person. But all you have to do is hold on to the basics. The foundational teaching of Christianity that Jesus is enough because Jesus is the Christ. Read with me in verses 24 through 29 here. Actually, we'll start with verses 24 through 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you heard from the begin, if if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us: eternal life. Jesus is the Christ is enough to give us eternal life with the Father, which means that life starts now. It's eternal, going both ways. Why do I keep stressing that Jesus is the Christ? Because John stresses it. John keeps saying from the beginning, if you abide what you heard from the beginning, from the beginning, because we must remember, John is best known as the famous disciple whom Jesus loved, an apostle, a writer of the New Testament, but he's also an evangelist. 
He was almost certainly the first to share the gospel with these people he's writing to, these dear little children to whom he writes. Notice the affection, little children. He saw himself as a spiritual father to them. What do you think John taught them? They have a nice little tract, a little book he went through. Did he go through a gospel with them? <laughs> Probably the case. Because most commentators agree, like any good professor or pastor, John made his own book required reading. John wrote the Gospel of John. And in that foundational teaching on the life of Jesus Christ, he, expl- he explicitly gives his whole point in sharing Jesus' story with people, which is this, John 20, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written. All of this is written so that you might believe That Jesus is what? Say it with me. The Christ. The Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. By trusting in Him, you can have life. Eternal life. Remember how important your first teachers were? Your first teachers of the Gospel and of Christianity and knowing Jesus and the lessons they imparted. I went back this week, just just looking back at some old notes from my young life leaders, from a youth pastor, from a senior pastor, sitting in sermons. I remember as a whole church body, we went through Neil Anderson's book, Bondage Breaker. And we went through Henry Blackaby's, even more so, more instrumental for me, the Experiencing God workbook. There was an adult edition, and I was a youth. We had a youth edition, a children's edition. Learned so much in those times. They're crucial times. And here at Sunrise, we hope if you have recently come to know Christ, if you're a new Christian, and there are, I'm, I know a lot of us who are newer to the faith, we aim to give you teaching. We do it imperfectly. But our aim is to give you teaching that introduces you to Jesus as the Christ, the all-sufficient one for salvation, for life, and for living. If you look at your bulletin you got this morning, you'll see our mission statement. It is to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by His grace. Help you grow by His grace simply means that not only do we want to introduce you to Jesus, we want to keep returning you and pointing you to Jesus to be confronted with His greatness, with His perfection, with His glory. To be convicted when we fall short of all that. To receive forgiveness that He gives through the cross. And in seeing His patient, enduring and endless love, guess what happens? You start to want to please Him. You start to want to follow obey Him. You start to want to change, and you do. Hopefully, if you're newer to the faith, this is such a place for you. Well, one day you're going to look back finally and think, I remember that teaching I got, that nourishment. I pray that. But, but one danger in all of this, in this knowledge, this teaching, and being that kind of church, one danger in all of this is that churches can turn into cults of personality. They can turn into cults. <laughs> that's, that's one thing, all right? You know, if I start showing up with the white shoes one day, that's when you know you're in a cult, right? You know, the white with the gold trim, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, it's happened. The alligator shoes, right? All the elders are going on a cruise for this elders' wives retreat. That's a problem. (laughs) But also cults of personality, especially with pastors and even more so teaching pastors. So John reminds God's people not only keep pressing into good teaching, sound doctrine, the basics, the foundations, but also the Holy Spirit. 
Read with me in verses 26 through 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone then should teach you, but as this anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him, in Jesus. This point isn't so much you don't need to go to church or listen to your pastor. <laughs> that, you know, verse 19 very much contradicts that. But, but to tap into the presence of the Holy Spirit in you to discern whether influential people are trying to dupe you. Whether people around you who sound well-meaning or friendly people you may even love me, the Holy Spirit can show you, are they trying to dupe me? This happens, and it's crushing in a church. People will rise up in otherwise harmless settings to point out new things about Jesus. Here's this new thing about the Bible. Here's this random verse in the Old Testament, which is the key to life. Or here's the secret to extra blessing. Have you heard about this? This is why John, I think, loved the phrase, the Spirit of Truth. When he talked about the Holy Spirit, he often talked about the Spirit of Truth. He uses it multiple times. John 4, 17. John 15, 26. John 16, 13. And here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. The Spirit of Truth who will guide you into all truth because he knew that we need the Holy Spirit to help us discern whether this new stuff that we're hearing aligns with foundational truth or not. Does it add to Jesus? Does it subtract from Jesus and his sufficiency? I usually, friends, hear two criticisms about church, perhaps more than any other criticism I hear, both at sunrise but also my 12 years of pastoral ministry, which I'm still a young pup. It's two extremes. Church is not doctrinal enough. We don't wade deeply enough in God's Word. We're not seeking enough maturity in the Word. We're not precise enough in what we believe and how we state that. We're not going deep enough in those ways. And the other extreme is the church is not spiritual enough. We're not filled enough with this presence, certain manifestations of the Spirit. What is interesting is John says here, I love it, that both are necessary. Solid teaching and anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the solution is this, to focus on Jesus Christ as all-sufficient, as enough. The one who is enough to give me all instructions for living. The one who is enough to be a go-between between me and God in all struggles. The one who is enough to rule and run my life. This Jesus. Why do I say he's enough? Because the Bible is clear that all doctrine, all of God's word, all of that good meaty stuff points to the need for the Christ that Jesus sufficiently meets. Places like the road to Emmaus where Jesus said, don't you know that the Christ had to suffer all these things? He had to rise from the dead. And all of God's law and scripture points to this fact. It's also clear in God's Word the Holy Spirit's main job is to convict people of the need for Jesus. To write words about Jesus. To make people more like Jesus. To give people gifts to glorify Jesus and build a visible body of Jesus. His church. In both cases, the pointing, you see, see it? It's all to Christ being enough. 
These extremes aren't opposite. These complaints aren't irreconcilable. The idea is as a church, as a people focusing, looking, being satisfied by Jesus. So seeing him is enough helps you abide all the way to eternal life with him. Here's our fourth point. It frees you. Seeing Jesus clearly frees you to be more like the Son. And here's, the be- to me, the best part. Read with me in verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, here's some of this visual language you're going to hear a lot of, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in, his, in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Again, visual language. But what we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In addition to the five times we hear this visual language of see and appear, John puts a couple other concepts at work here. First, there's something about seeing Jesus Christ. There's something about seeing his enoughness that clearly frees you to change until the day you see the Son in eternal glory. Until you see him completely clearly where sin is gone, weakness is gone, the God of this world, Satan, is removed. Something about seeing him clearly that frees you to change in the meantime until you completely change in his presence. But, here's the second thing at work here. This only happens because he has already freed you. Simple trust in Jesus to save sufficiently allows the Father to presently declare us as righteous, verse 28, to adopt us as God's children. When? Now, verse 2. And deem us even pure. Because we are these things, we are enabled to then practice righteousness. Begin practicing righteousness we are taking on more of the family resemblance as we grow in Christ. We are purifying ourselves continually. So we are these things. We are becoming these things. Now, I know that I am not consistently acting righteously. You know, I'm not always acting like a son of the family. I'm not certainly always acting pure. So how do I reconcile this? How do I make sense of this? Well, to give a legal analogy, and the verdict precedes their performance, which is different from any other religion or moral philosophy you can live by. All of which say that by performing well, our lives are justified. And aren't all of us trying to justify ourselves in some ways to one another, to ourselves, our very existence? We're just trying to work and strive to justify ourselves. And if we perform well enough, we feel justified. Jesus spoke, led, lived out worthiness, and took on the verdict meant for us to justify us, to 
make us right with the Father so we can freely perform. To give an athletic analogy, I'm trying to make sense of all this, the victory precedes the points scored. Say it again. The victory precedes scoring points. Differ from every other athletic contest in which I participated. That's why twice in the New Testament says only one score literally counts. Faith or trust in Jesus' sufficiency, that He is enough. Faith, trust, that's all you need. The life He lived and the score Jesus earned was enough. What does that do? And you realize that. Think about that, when, friends. You engage in sports and athletic endeavors, right? Even if it's in your own mind <laughs> or on the Wii, Xbox, whatever it is. What does that do? Now, I've always played lots of sports. I love sports. I admit, as I was preparing this sermon, I had faced the realization I played a lot more before I had kids, even more when I, when I was an assistant pastor. This lead pastor thing, man, I don't know. Uh, but I loved, of all sports, and I'll play pretty much anything, I love basketball and golf the most. Now, I've had my fair share of choke jobs in both of these sports as well in serious competition. Not a ton, just a fair share. Right? It's the pride in me. Uh, when the pressure's on, called to perform, I remember freezing up, letting a guy dribble by me in basketball and score for an overtime victory. Heartbreaking. Although I should have had help defense behind me. That's another story, but it's okay. <laughs> I've blown a three-shot lead with three holes to play in golf, in junior tournaments, this sort of thing. But what, what would be different in those scenarios if I knew the victory was already accomplished? While playing. Maybe even while behind. The victory's already accomplished. Well, what happened? I would play better golf. Right? I would swing more freely. I would score more baskets. I would play more wily defense. Why would that happen? Because I'm certain victory would free me from failure. I know the result. I know what's going to happen. So I perform better. The victory precedes points scored. And amazingly, here's the beautiful paradox of Christianity. It frees you to score more points for Jesus. You see that? There's a freedom from failure. What's the worst that happened? Like Peter walking out to Jesus on the water. The best that can happen is by faith he walks to Jesus and walks on the water. What's the worst that happens? Jesus catches him. That's a win-win, if you ask me. You'll be free to take faith risks for him. That's awesome. Let me use one more analogy, and that's John's analogy here, which is really John's reality here. That is adoption into a family as a child. In his book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Pastor Mark Buchanan writes about a woman named Regine. Regine trusted Christ while reading her sister's Bible during the genocide that ravaged her country, Rwanda. When she fled to Canada for refuge, she met her husband, Gordon, and they decided to return to Rwanda to share the love of Christ with those they formerly deemed enemies. While there, 
where Jean heard the most remarkable story about adoption. And I've heard, by the way, a lot of adoption stories. My wife, Katie, shows them to me frequently. She'd like to adopt a child, and so I watch a lot of adoption stories, and I continue to pray, Lord. Yeah, anyway, that's another story. <laughs> the most remarkable story of adoption. A, woman's, uh, a woman she spoke with shared about how her only son was killed. She was consumed, or this Rwandan woman was consumed with grief and with hate. But then she experienced the healing power of Jesus Christ's forgiveness in her own life. And it flowed into the lives of others. Just a few nights later, she heard a knock at her door. She opened it, and there stood a young man about her son's age. She said, yes. He hesitated, stammered, then said, I am the one who killed your son. And since that day, I've had no life, had no peace. So here I am. I'm placing my life in your hands. Kill me because I am dead already. Throw me in jail because I'm in prison. It's been my life. Torture me because I'm in torment already. Do with me as you wish. I'm in your hands. woman fell into her own surprise that she did not want to kill him or throw him in jail or torture him. In that moment of reckoning, she found she wanted one thing, a longing inside of her. She wanted a son. She said, I, you know, I ask this of you. This is just a radical step. I ask this of you. Come into my home and live with me. Eat the food that I would have prepared for my son, wear the clothes I would have made for my son, Become the son that I lost. And he did. She adopted him. Now, the few adopted friends that I know share a common struggle that is different from when they were young. When younger, a question often lingers as an adopted person Am I truly accepted? Some feel that sense that quicker than others. Some don't ever experience it. They will ask the question, am I truly a Smith, a Scott, a Van Rensburg, a, a Baden? Do I look like my brothers and sisters or biologically children of my mom and dad? If they clear that hurdle and sense acceptance, it's interesting to find they often encounter a second hurdle into adulthood. Second question. Having watched their adult brothers and sisters take on personality traits and the physical resemblances as adults, they ask the question, do I resemble my mom and dad? First am I accepted, but now do I resemble my mom and dad? Have I grown to resemble the parent who adopted me into their family? And what's unique about being adopted into God's family is that such resemblance is made possible, acceptance and resemblance, at the heaviest price. I imagine for this young man, this Rwandan man who killed this woman's son, as amazing as this acceptance was, the former killer must wonder, as he keeps living his life, how can I ever live up to or grow up to the son whom I killed? 
I mean, the price, right, is too steep to be overlooked forever. Someone must wonder, even if I am a good son, I'd rather have my other son back. But that's exactly the point. The price was so steep that she couldn't choose just anyone. When her son died, she couldn't choose just anyone. It had to be the guilty party. What else is it for? That price. The Bible is clear, friends. And I'll just state it clearly. You and I killed Jesus Christ, God the Father's Son. Our rebellion, the big no in our hearts called sin, it took Jesus to his death. God's Son. It's too heavy a price to just save anyone. He doesn't intend to pay so heavy a price if he didn't intend to make something of you. The price is so heavy, friends, you can be confident that he will take you all the way through to family resemblance. You and I need to hear this. You need to remember the price, looking at the cross. Because you may accept his acceptance of you but you go through long periods, and you might be in one now where you, you wonder if I'll ever grow anymore. Will I ever change anymore? Will I ever look more like Jesus? And the Bible says I'm supposed to. And so John promises in verse 2 and 3. Let's read it again because it's so glorious. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because you will see him as he is. We will look like the son, look like a family member. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Purify yourself in with this promise that there is something about seeing Jesus as he is. And as you keep looking to him, you'll be sure that you will take on that family resemblance one day perfectly. How can you respond this morning to these glorious realities? We're told here, the more clearly we see him as he is. There's something about it. The more clearly we see Jesus as he is, we look outside of ourselves and our own stuff, our own circumstances, our own petty reasons for not following God or fellowshipping with people, reading our Bibles, our own real difficulties. The more we clearly see him as he is, the more we drink him in, the more we meditate on Jesus, the sufficiency, the freer we will be to take on family resemblances. So I want to encourage you. How do you respond? Linger and look. You remember the Cranberry song. Do you have to let it linger? Yes. That's the answer. Linger and look at his sufficiency as a prophet, priest, and king. Even as just in his own life, he also is sufficient in his death and resurrection. Now, I want to encourage you. Write some of this down for later. He is a sufficient prophet. I want to linger here for a little bit. He's a sufficient prophet. A.K.A. He gives me sufficient instructions for life and living. Think about it. If you look through the Gospels, 20 different times Jesus says, you have heard it been said, but I say to you. People hear all kinds of ways to live, including many Jews to whom Jesus ministered here when he was saying these things. But what Jesus Christ says is radically right. Radically enough. I say to you, 
John 6, 67-69, most people leave Jesus at this point in his ministry when he asks for total allegiance to his sufficiency. Most people leave. They say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You want us to love you that much? You want us to see you as that sufficient? You want us to rely on you that much? They leave. Peter turns to his disciples and says, what about you? And Peter says, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. These great moments where Jesus displays himself as a sufficient prophet. So Jesus displays himself as such a sufficient prophet. Anytime he speaks, truly I say, he turns a phrase, he interprets the Old Testament, he stumps a surprise as a listener. Go back to the Gospels and look at these instances. Sufficient person to speak into our lives as well. To give us instructions for living. He's a sufficient priest. Linger there and look at how he's the perfect me and God go between when I'm in need. Jesus and the woman caught in adultery where others try to intercede. Jesus intercedes perfectly between God's law and this woman in sin, right? He doesn't say, God, oh, the law is wrong. No, he perfectly intercedes and provides justice, a perfect kind of justice. Jesus and the storm. The sea for the people in, in, in these days represented the wrath of God, trouble. They didn't like to see all the waves. It just represented wrath. And you have human beings on this tiny ship with little faith. Jesus gets in between. That's what he does. Or God's law about picking grain on the Sabbath and accusations towards the disciples. Jesus gets in between. There's all kinds of these instances. Jesus displays himself as a sufficient priest anytime he gets in between people and God and his law to reconcile the two. We see it in his life. Linger there. Look at Jesus. Is he sufficient to get in between you and God now when you're in need? Finally, he's a sufficient king. He can sufficiently run and rule my life. Jesus Christ displays himself as a sufficient king anytime he supersedes reigning human, natural, and supernatural powers. There's so many examples of this. And he shows these glimpses that he has power over them. I'd love to linger over all of these longer. So let's you and I commit to do just that. This week, this month, this year, to look and linger at Jesus as enough. Linger over these verses in the Gospels, in New Testament passages like these. Underline your Bible where you see him startle and surprise you with his life-giving words. Make a note where you see him rescue someone from themselves in the holiness of God's law, silently sit in awe and thanksgiving at his rulership. Don't be surprised as you start to look at him. You start to change. start to even show the enoughness to Jesus to others. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks that you are enough. And we ask you would help us abide in this teaching by your Holy Spirit all the way to eternal life. Help us keep getting ourselves around teaching that reminds us and and points to Jesus and his enoughness in life. Help us tap into the Holy Spirit whose presence in our life to help us discern where there's error, where there's a sense of wrongness, even where there's an antichrist, Lord. We ask especially this morning that you'd help us behold, see, drink in, meditate, consider you. Help us see you clearly more and more in our lives. 
Help us do something about that by just looking at who you were, who you are, and your word. Help us to stand and behold and be in awe of your glory. There's no one, two, three steps to this, Lord. There's just a getting into the life of Jesus, to your son's life, relying on him, abiding in him, looking to him. Please remove the things in our lives, Lord, that prevent us from seeing you clearly. Please remove those things. Each of us, there's people, each of us here knows what that is in our lives. Some idol, some gray area maybe even that if we're honest, we know, you know, I probably should get rid of that in my life. I'm probably looking to that for my satisfaction, for my sufficiency, and I can't see Jesus clearly because of it. Remove that. But remove it, Jesus, by helping us see your great glory in your perfection, your purity, not through guilt, shame, obligation, but by wanting your holiness, by seeing your greatness and being sufficiently attracted to it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.